Hello and welcome to the Rogue Monkey podcast and episode 39. We've reached the penultimate episode of season 5 and it's been amazing so far. We've had guests from all around the world ranging from entrepreneurs to Premier League footballers. And today I've got a very humbling discussion to share with you, which follows on nicely from our last show where we spoke to the founder of the mental health and wellbeing platform, GoVox. If you've not caught up with that one yet, please head back and check out that episode. Today, we've got two guests joining me. Matt Trussell is the managing director at Go Big Digital, a marketing agency. But in a previous career, he served in the armed forces in Afghanistan. Following his return from frontline duty, he became aware of his deteriorating mental health and has been on a journey of discovery ever since. Our second guest is James Bull, a station commander in the fire and rescue service. Following some traumatic experiences early into his career, James also suffered from mental health challenges and has used sport and physical challenges to help him on his journey ever since. Today, Matt and James take us through their reflections on the causes of their mental health challenges, the different ways they have approached dealing with them and provide some hugely powerful insights that challenge some of the stigmas surrounding mental health. It's a frank and honest discussion and I cannot thank both Matt and James enough for agreeing to join me today. So let's get into it and episode 39 of the Rogue Monkey podcast, Challenging Stigmas on the Frontline of Mental Health Awareness, a conversation with Matt Trussell and James Bull. Good morning, gents. Welcome to the podcast. How are you both? Yeah, good, thanks. Fantastic. Well, we've got some interesting discussions, I'm sure, to have over well, the next half hour, hour, we'll see how we go. Uh, but just to kind of kick us off, Matt, if you can give us a quick introduction as to who you are and kind of your headline journey. Okay, yep. So I'm Matt Russell. I'm a marketing professional and web developer. Um, I run my own agency called Go Big Digital. Um, I work closely with a company called GoVox, who are a mental health application um, that's kind of intended to support people with their mental health. Um, the, previously, I was in the armed forces for just over five years, um, joined from the age of 17, which is quite a young age to get into that uh, line of work. And pretty much that's me. Fantastic. And James? Um, I am James Ball. I have been in the Fire and Rescue Service for 20 years now. Um, so, yeah, I guess you could say I'm a veteran. Uh, so I I guess I, my, my issues that we're going to be talking about today started, well, they started quite early on, but they didn't become apparent or sort of obvious until sort of 2006, uh, at which point I'd already been in for sort of six years. Um, so, and then it's just a catalogue of events from that point and a bit of a journey and a discovery. Okay. Well, obviously, like you said, it's a journey and I think we, we've, listening to the stuff before we went on there both of you have obviously had a very um up and down journey in terms of your experiences and some of the challenges you've had so very much today we're going to explore those um but from both of you point of view kind of your your earliest recognition of where you started to take mental health more seriously than perhaps you'd previously done was there at a point for each of you matt i don't know if you want to start us off yeah so actually um i suppose 
my my awareness grew when I returned from Afghanistan. Um, we were stuck in Cyprus for a few days after the tour. Um, the tour was quite stressful because it was searching for IEDs, um, which is something I volunteered to train for because I essentially wanted to get out to Afghanistan and they did it by trade. So, And I was a plumber by trade. So my name wasn't kind of automatically down to go out there. So I thought, no, grabbing the ball by the horns, there's a there's a space available in the search team. Um, let's go. Um, fast forward to, to the tour itself. About a month in, my friend stepped on an IED um, in an area where someone, the team before us, um, about an hour or so before us, the, the person leading their isolation of the area partially detonated an IED so we already knew it was a bit of a bit of a dodgy area um, but we'd been told up until that point that cr they don't target ditches um, so I don't know how long it took them to finally catch up to the fact that they do um, because infantry all the time are crossing across these ditches and these same lin linear features um, so yeah the, my friend was blown up um, he lost both his legs I mean fast forward ahead he is alive just to put that into a bit of context, which has been very helpful. Um, but yeah, when I arrived in Cyprus, um, you do this thing called decompression. So they keep you there for like a day or so. You do a bit of adventurous training, um, go, go on boats if you want, go swimming in the sea. They put on forced entertainment where there's a comedian there with the hardest job in the world, probably, um, trying to make all these blokes laugh. And uh, yeah, not much laughter, suffice to say. Um, you have like two or three beers, you got tokens, so no one's getting drunk or anything. Um, but then we went to Akrotiri, which is the kind of main base over there. Um, and we, we ended up waiting for about three days to fly out from Cyprus back home. And th there's a bar there, and there wasn't a limit on how much drink you could have. So I probably, I mean, I probably had about five or six pints, but it felt like obviously a lot more at the time after not drinking for six months. And I was looking around and I, I didn't feel quite right. I was looking at everyone laughing and joking. And I was thinking there's people that died out there and there's people that didn't make it back. And it kind of, I found that quite profound. Fast forward, I was laying down on the ground, being eaten alive by insects, waiting for a bus I don't know why I was waiting for a bus on this camp. I think I saw a bus up there. And my teammates came over to me that were with me on the tour. And they kind of said, you're right. And it was like, they, they effectively led us back to the accommodation. And on the walk back, I just broke down in tears, saying, you know, about what happened to our friend Jim, um, kind of blaming myself for it. And... From then onwards, really, there was a whole journey of kind of things that, that came into play. Like, I felt really detached from friends and family. I thought I couldn't relate to anyone. I felt kind of spaced out in a way. Um, yeah, and I just knew kind of something wasn't quite right. But I, I suppose I still wasn't overly aware of mental health. I thought that's just what happens to people when they come back from tour. Um and I suppose I formally became aware a few a few years after that. After so I left the forces in the end. Um, this was through voluntary redundancy. 
and pretty much kind of grabbing the ball by the horns because I also had a physical injury, which was a, a non-freezing cold injury um, from standing around in ditches. And it was contrary to popular belief, it was very cold in Afghan in the winter. Um, so I took that proactive decision. In hindsight, it's because I was suffering with mental health as well, um, because actually I was kind of locking myself away in my room, drinking every day, uh, and in pretty bad pretty bad shape really I couldn't sleep at all I was listening to music in the night trying to have a bit of distraction the telly on um so there's a whole array of things but I suppose yeah that that was the the main reason I became aware and it became worse when I went to college and uni after that because there's absolutely no structure whatsoever um really I mean I'm sure they'll tell you differently um but essentially you know there's this period of time where you're left to write your own schedule and if you've got mental health problems, you're not very good at scheduling yourself until you've actually got the right mechanisms in place. So all this free time was just a killer. And I was kind of floating about all over the place, really. Um, um, I'm really curious, and I'll, we'll dive into it a bit more later, talking about the sports and health aspect. But we've not delved into these types of discussions too deeply previously on the show. But we have spoke to a number of high-performing athletes who after a major event whether it's an olympics world championships whatever it is they come back and everything stops and they're removed from their normal structured world and they fall into this void and there's been some quite high profile cases around the world of athletes that have effectively spiraled into some really bad mental places and they're coming from a world like you say that's there's, there's no death or anything like that to deal with there you know it they say it's life and death but you know sport is sport but actually there's some interesting parallels there already emerging. And I'm, I'm curious now on the route that we'll come on to with James of actually when you first started, did you have these similar kind of experiences of kind of it was happening, but you're probably more aware of it now looking back or did you, were you as aware of it at the time? Um, it's a difficult one. I, I try and look back and put myself in my shoes back then. And I, I was, I was aware something was going on with me, but I, I couldn't put my finger on it. And I kind of just hoped it was a phase <clears throat> that I would get through. But ultimately, um, I, I didn't. And it led to it led to issues because I didn't deal with anything. But I, I came from a time where 20 years ago, mental health was not on the forefront of people's minds. And we didn't have resources like we do now that would deal with it we, now we're really proactive with it and it's it's much more recognized much more mainstream um so with my with my probationers now that come onto my stations you know as soon as they go to their first fatal which unfortunately is inevitable at some stage you know we i see that look in their eyes that rabbit between the headlights it that that shock and and so we try and get them to process that there and then and get them get them into some kind of help straight away, whether they think they need it or not, just to just just to see, because back then, you know, we didn't process any of that. And you just carry that baggage with you. And and you know, as my my therapist described, you know, it's each memory you come across, you put in that proverbial shoebox in your head. And after a, you know, 20 years in my case, that there's not enough room anymore. And that lid comes off and those memories spill out and that's that's when you're in trouble but um like I say my my journey of discovery if you like 
began around 2006. Um, and for me, it was, um, it was almost sensory overload. I, I could normally deal with bits and bobs that came in at one time, but I had a lot of things come in at one time. A couple of colleagues had, had died in quite a high profile fire the year before. Um, I had a, a relationship breakdown at the time. I had a close family member die at the same time. And it was just all of these um, things came at once and I, I, I just couldn't manage it all at the same time. I just couldn't process it. And essentially, I didn't know it at the time, but I had a breakdown and I went a bit doolally, to be honest. Um, I didn't necessarily recognise it myself. It was others around me that recognised it. And <clears throat> I was forced to take a little bit of time off work back then. That was sort of 2006. Um, but in that time, I did nothing to, again, I, I had no treatment. I did nothing to process those those issues that were going on. And so I basically just, a bit like Matt just said, I, I spent 10 months sort of drinking. And and to, to be honest, I was, I was an idiot during that time. I, I went out looking to get into fights. Um, it was almost, it was almost a form of, um, you know, self-inflicted sort of pain I, I i wanted people to give me a good kick in i don't know it was just like some form of escapism i was looking for and i just it was just a night nightmare of a time i look back it was a very very bleak time um and i anyway i came back to work and i hadn't actually solved anything really i just think i just learned to bottle it up better um i hadn't processed anything hadn't got any help um but over the years things started getting a bit worse and so I did actually start looking for a bit of treatment. I went to our occupational health unit. I started getting a bit of treatment here and there. I got sent to the service psychologist and this, that and the other. But each time I dipped in and out of treatment, I never fully committed to a program because I was young and full of testosterone. I just wanted a quick fix. I thought I could just go the once, get something to sort me out, and then I could come back, you know, and, and, and it wouldn't show because, you know, even back then, 20 years ago, it was I, I, to my peers, I didn't want it to be seen as a, a sign of weakness that I couldn't cope in this job, in this very much manly, testosterone-fueled world. And I wanted, you know... Uh, um, so, I, again, I, I just bottled it up. I didn't really do anything. And, again, and then I started to spiral again. Um, uh, a few incidents occurred, and I went to see psychiatrist in Harley Street and I got diagnosed with um what was it acute acute anxiety depression PTSD and paranoia um so it was a sort of a whole host of things so again I was dipping in and out of treatment for a few years thinking I'd sort of sorted myself out but never fully committing to a program um, and then coming back to work in fact, I never took any time off. It was only that one time back sort of 2006. Um, I just I just learned to bury it better. I, I, we, someone with mental health becomes a professional wearing a mask, and that's what I did basically um, for years and years. Um, and it wasn't until um, I sort of got married and, and that sort of thing. I would have probably carried on like that because it was only affecting me or that's the way I saw it in my sort of selfish point of view. So... If it was just affecting me, I could just carry on burying my head and hoping these things would go away and trying to deal with them as they came along. But um, when I got with my partner um, and I had a son, 
that was kind of then the catalyst. Um, my behaviour, my mood swings, my my distanced personality, um, my inability, you know, a lot of things that Matt actually just said. I was just, I wasn't connected to the world. I was on my own little planet. Um, they, she pleaded with me to, to sort of basically get help. And, and that's, at that point, I realised I was affecting other people. It wasn't just about me anymore. So that was a catalyst to go and get help. So I promised her that I would go and, again, through occupational health and went to I went with a psychiatrist and this sort of stuff. Um, but I, I promised this time I would commit to it. But inside, I was thinking, really, I was just sort of, you know, it was, I was paying lip service to it. I didn't think I really well. I was just going through the motions in my head just to be getting that tick in the box to say I was doing something about it. But um, so I went back into the treatment quite sceptical, I think, and dismissive of it. Um, and again, the problems weren't going away. And and it dawned on me, actually, that I'd been unhappy for a very, very long time. And I couldn't, it got to the point where I couldn't remember the last time I was actually, I, I was actually happy or had experienced any kind of joy or felt connected to the world. And um, yeah, I did, I did miss out that sort of years previously, I had sort of had attempted suicide on a couple of occasions. Um, but again, looking back, I don't think I really was. I think it was just, I, I don't know, maybe I was looking for attention, um, cry for help kind of thing, because if I'd really wanted to do it, I'd have done it and I, I didn't. So looking back on it, I don't think I really meant it at the time. I was just, again, looking for escapism. So anyway, sorry, I'm babbling. Uh, fast forward, I, I started treatment and actually after it, a few sessions, maybe it was just this um, therapist that I was seeing, something sort of started to click and I thought I was starting to be taught things that were sink sinking in, you know, coping mechanisms and grounding techniques and all these sorts of things, which I hadn't really, hadn't really grasped before. Um, and we also discovered actually through my treatment that I, I had Asperger's, um, which I'd never known. And I'm likely to have had my whole life, which actually explains a lot of things in my past. Um, you know, I'm I'm not good in social situations. I'm um, I'm not very good at body language, social etiquette, things like that. I just I struggle a little bit. I'm high I'm high functioning. You know, I'd like to say a lot of geniuses have Asperger's, but I'm far from that. But um, so I'm high functioning. So it hadn't affected my life in that sense. I couldn't cope, but it, it did explain a lot of things. So we spent a lot of time sort of looking into that. And that had obviously made me quite susceptible to, to some of these things as well, almost more vulnerable to suffering with mental health issues from some of my experiences. And um, so I stuck with the treatment. And, and like I said, that was in 2017. And I've been in the thick of that treatment ever since I've not I've not stopped that treatment so in that time you know I've done a lot, a lot of things like, like I know Matt has as well um cognitive behavioral therapy um EMDR for the PTSD um so where where am I now um I, yeah I'm I'm not healed but I'm a work in progress and I'm but I'm a lot better than I used to be and I'm now I know I now know about my condition you know again like Matt said I I'm someone that I have to be at work 20 years in the fire service I am whether I like it or not I'm, in, I'm institutionalized uh, I need structure and, and again because of my Asperger's I need routine and structure 
without that, I, I, I completely spiral. So, and I don't know any other way. I've lived 20 years of my life, you know, being told where to be and, you know, and, and so when you're kind of left to your own devices, it's a bit of an alien world for people in the services and the forces. It's, it's not what you're used to. Um, so I do need that routine and structure. Uh, I'll, I'll finish up because I know I'm going on a bit here, um, but it's quite a long story really. <laughs> but for me, the, and I know this is part of our conversation today, that the exercise, the sport, where did that come in? Because I'm also a sponsored athlete and have been for many years. Um, I, in the earlier years, sort of 2006 onwards, I was on God knows every kind of antidepressant. I, I must've been on 12 different antidepressants over that time. Some worked, some didn't, but one thing they had, all had in common was I hated being on any kind of medication. I hated that stigma that I was reliant on um, some kind of drug to make me a normal everyday t- neurotypical person. Um, so I was desperate to get off them. And, and I, actually I found that I'd always trained because I'd always played rugby and things like that. And I'd sort of been sort of semi-professional in my younger years and things like that. So training and sport was always a, a close thing for me anyway. But when I really got bad, going to the gym and my training regime kind of became my only freedom from my thoughts because I was focused on what I was doing at that time. And I realized that was my, that was my best form of escapism. I didn't need to go out, get myself in trouble. I didn't need to drink. I, I needed to stay in the gym. <laughs> I needed to be training. That was my escapism and, and, and a healthy escapism at that. So um, that's kind of when I started getting quite obsessive with my training, but you know, like I say, at least it's a healthy obsession as long as you know, know what you're doing. And um, over time, um, the training and my, my gym time essentially took over from the medication. I came off, wing, weaned off medication. And, and now, even now, I call my training my medication as well because it keeps me off medication. Um, and, you know, like my wife says, I'd rather you come home later from work and stuff like that and, and had and you've been in the gym because she doesn't want me coming home ratty and stuff like that. Cause she knows I need, I need that time in there to decompress. Um, so anyway, I've been going on quite, quite a while. I'll let Matt get a word. In. <laughs> no, that's good to share. Good to share everything, mate. It is. And I think it's, and obviously we're talking with obviously some, from, from both of your experiences, some really uh, traumatic earlier parts to your journeys. But I think when we're talking around this kind of mental health journey, if you like, it's the, it's your perception of it at the start relative to your reflections on it. Now I've found fascinating because just talking to you guys here and obviously with Richard, who kind of connected us go back. Where are we now? So go back just over a year before all of this stuff kicked off. Um, I was going through that myself. So I come off the back and nowhere near to the extreme, but I sadly lost my dad in 2019 and watched literally was there right to the end and never dealt with it and kind of imploded in kind of January, February, March last year and actually used the lockdown period to refine that structure, support, go through CBT and those sorts of things. And actually reflecting back now, it's, not that you were closed minded, but it was more just an introverted thing. It was just you and your thoughts and your perceptions of everything. But when you start talking with somebody completely removed from that and they start explaining it and actually going through why you're thinking this. And like you said, with the shoebox analogy, you start unpacking some of that and some of it goes way back that you're not even aware of. 
And then you actually kind of go, oh, wow, this is incredible. And then you factor in the sport and the health and the fitness aspects of it all. It does become, I, I just find it fascinating talking to people that have been on that journey because it's very lonely at the start of it. And actually, when you, the more people I now talk to having had these similar experiences, there is a real commonality and connection that we can all share to actually say, yeah, we were in a bad place. And we're not saying, like you said, we're at a finished article, but we are on a journey and it's, it's kind of, it's comforting in a way, I guess, that you can talk to people that have had similar experiences, have come out the other side. It feels empowering that they can do it, I can do it. And I don't know, like, especially like with with your armed forces background, Matt, you're obviously not going to be alone in this situation in the sense of there are probably a lot of veterans who have come back and had similar experiences. So have you had those conversations with other people who have gone on similar journeys and suddenly felt like, oh, it's not me? Yeah, so I, I think... Um... I was in denial for a while. Um, when I went to the, the, the time I got diagnosed was again same as you, James. Um, my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, was was kind of noticing that I was seemingly miserable. I, I wasn't talking when we were in a queue with people because I thought they'd be listening in. Um, all these, I was very quiet in a supermarket. Wouldn't say a word. All these weird things still, still were there. Um, and in the end, I thought, no, like enough's enough. I don't actually want to just be this person that's kind of perceived as being negative. And to be honest, probably, probably was negative and and still can be in many ways. Um, however, I went to see speak to Combat Stress, which is a charity, um, because still charities are picking up the pieces a lot um when it comes to forces and services there's nothing rigid in place there's no kind of off off boarding process where they kind of like give you give give you a proper look at and proper support um certainly armed forces anyway so yeah i went to speak with combat stress went for an assessment i was thinking you know you you do a bit googling yep i sound a bit anxious sound depressed went for an assessment completely open-minded i was honest and I got a call back um, after saying, yeah, we've gone through your assessment. You actually meet the criteria for PTSD um, and anxiety and depression. And that, I was like, okay, well, PTSD, I felt a bit of a fraud because PTSD was taught to you like people going around like chicken, making chicken noises, jumping on the floor, kind of every time there's a bang and so on. Um so it took me a while to process that and in the end a few years later I went to see a consultant level psychiatrist or psychologist or whatever it is to get like a second diagnosis just to confirm and she confirmed that Um, and the reason I did that was because I contacted the armed forces about it because there's like a no kind of blame no fault compensation scheme in place for people that are suffering from these issues and any injury really, um, and they said no, we can't accept a diagnosis from Combat Stress, uh, which is like a charity focused around helping people with mental health issues. So that was a bit of a joke, and that kind of summarises my perceptions of of how they still treat veterans and people that are serving and the attitude to mental health. Um, now I told I'm in a WhatsApp group as everyone is these days with some of the people I used to serve with. And in the end, I, I ended up putting a message out there to them saying, look, I've, I'm sorry. I remember, actually, that I became detached from you all. 
um, at the time we were still in Germany together. Um, you know, I, I've actually since discovered it's because I, I was suffering at the time. Um, and it's just what I did. I locked myself away in my room. Um, and, and in the end, a few of them actually reached out to me and said, thanks for opening up about that, you know. Actually, you should never feel ashamed talking about it. And some of them said, um, actually, yeah, I've been struggling, you know. Not everyone has to see a really traumatic thing to, to suffer. Actually, it can be over years of kind of this... Um, <laughs> it's not a pre oppressive regime, but there's a lot of structure there. And there's a lot of hierarchy... And sometimes it can be just that you don't like your section commander, you don't like your troop commander, and you're stuck under them, and you feel like trapped and that they could punish you at any minute with any of the nonsense stuff that happens in the forces. Um, people from previous conflicts, um, like the Falklands, the Gulf War, I mean, a lot of them have really bottled it up because it was pretty harsh back then in the forces. It's, be it's become progressively better in how they kind of treat people and how they how they educate around mental health, um, along with society, really. But yeah, I mean, there's probably a lot more people from Iraq and Afghanistan suffering with the mental health now um, that that have taken their own life, sadly, because they're not opening up, they're not seeking the help. Um, they, th they still think they're going to be stigmatized even though they're out of the forces it's not going to impact their career if they're in the if they're serving that they're probably you know you, you can look around and just think oh that person loves a beer they're drinking every day that's not normal that that's not, even in the forces now that's that's not really normal um that that sort of activity could be a sign um and until until people lose the fear that it's going to impact their career they're never going to really have an open and honest conversation around it. Um, I remember I would have never said anything to anyone because I didn't want to get kicked out of the forces because I was suffering with my mental health. Um, and there needs to be these things put in place um, to actually reassure people uh, and, and keep the conversation going. Um, partly why I wanted to kind of talk with you. Um, sport has been a massive help for me. Um, but talking is probably the biggest thing. And, and my journey has led me to, to, to keep an eye on other people and talk to them and reach out to them if I think they might be struggling. You know, going on walks with people that live on their own. Um, lockdown's been hard. Isolation has really taken its toll on people. I, I wouldn't be surprised if there really is a huge um, kind of pandemic of mental health issues following this. Um, so, yeah. In a roundabout way, essentially, I think, um, yes, I have spoken to veterans that are struggling. Yes, people are opening up, but far too many are kind of left in a deep, dark void and, and in the end taking their own lives. I don't know if they're too proud to seek help or anything, but, you know, it's nothing to do with pride. You should be proud, actually, that you are seeking help and you are actually showing. It's not weakness at all. It's just showing strength and seeking that help. I think it's um, I, I, I'm just again speaking quite as a, a relatively young, open-minded person. I remember between lockdown, you know, whenever it was nine and ten, some point last year in the summer, I remember sitting with a lot of my dad's friends who were in their like late fifties, early sixties, and are that kind that generation, mm. and they said, "How are you doing?" And I remember saying to them the journey I'd been on over the months leading up to that and all of them were almost like they could not believe what they were hit one that I was being so open about it 
but two that I was almost like advocating. I was like, guys, I know in your heads, you're, you're experiencing exactly what I've experienced for the last six months. You knew my dad for 50 something years and you just watch what I've watched. And yet you're not talking about it. And actually having people in the positions that you've been in and the, the ability for you to share that story, it almost um, empowers people to actually go, Oh, you know, I'm feeling that too. And yeah, that I can do it. I can say something because they hear that it's, it's the stigma in your head is always worse than what it is when you actually speak. And I don't know if being obviously with the experiences you've had, James, did you feel like actually once you started talking about it, there was, it was almost like a rallying call to people to rally around you more than they were previously. Yeah. My, you know, Matt and I are of a generation, typical blokes, uh, similar experience to me when I first started to suffer with these things, you know, back 2006 and onwards, I I was too scared to go to the occupational health unit and stuff like that because I didn't want I didn't want any kind of mental health link on my sick record because I was I feared that that would be used as a weapon against me in the future for promotions or or, or whatever or in some way angling me out of the job. So uh, I didn't even want that on my record. So I, I would have been more inclined to go and get help outside of my, my work. Um, even though we have a dedicated occupational health unit, which is meant to be for that, they were at that time they were renowned for being sort of poor with that. And like I say, we've got a lot, lot better over the years. And, that, and now we have um, mental health uh, and well-being boards. And then we've got separate sort of splinter district groups. And you know, I chair the one in my district, and we feed back into the main mental health board and for the county council and things like that. So much much more mainstream now we've got resources that can help um but we uh, i still feel we're a long way from mental health being seen on a par with a physical injury and in some circles i know there are still people that don't buy into it um even a fairly close colleague of mine recently who's who's of a similar age to me i guess i mentioned something about mental health and then he said oh I don't believe in all that crap you know and, and and was quite dismissive of it and I just thought in today's day and age it still goes to show that there are people out there um that just don't buy into it and and some people also label mental health as um the new bad back because back in the day a lot of people will go off with bad backs because you can never disprove you know their sickness if yeah. they were off time because it's very very difficult and, and it's now the same with mental health and you'll always get a few charlatans who will try try it on with any system um but yeah so fast forward to now you know speaking out about it now it was a huge huge fear for me this has been a massive obstacle because i knew when i took started taking on i've always done a lot of endurance challenges and raising money for the firefighters charity and, and specifically their their mental health uh, recuperation programs and things like that, um, who've always been very good for firefighters. Um, and we have convalescence centres around the country where we can go and, you know, for physical injury and mental health. So that's, again, it's outside of work, but it's the firefighters charity that's dedicated to that and they're really good. So we raise money for them. And a lot of my events, my endurance challenges that I've done, I raise money for them. And that's no different to the, to the Marathon de Sable that I'm currently uh, undertaking. I'm raising money for their mental health programs. And, and I knew taking on a big high-profile high, high event like this, and especially because of the documentary where I'm being filmed as well, 
I knew it would start generating some interest, if you like, from the media. And, I, you know, I've done, you know, a year ago, I'd never done a podcast like this. And, you know, I've done lots of media and press articles and things like this. And predominantly because people are interested in the documentary, I don't think for a second they're interested in me. It's a documentary that a lot of people are wanting to be featured on. So some of these companies that have come forward and things like that, which is great. Because it all, for me, it all adds to the awareness of the actual issue. Um, it's not about me; it's about it's about the cause. Um, but I, I knew that all of that interest off the back of that would would force me to start talking about my very, very private story that's been very private for twenty years. And and I was really, really that was massively out of my comfort zone. Uh, however, with the delay because of the, to the event because of the pandemic, I, I'm you know. It's been delayed for almost two years now. Um, I've got a lot more used to talking about it in press articles and newspaper articles and podcasts and this, that, and the other. Um, so I am getting more and more used to it and be, being quite open about it. And and actually, I've reached a point now where I think I don't care if people think it's a week. There'll always be trolls out there that want to criticise anything you do. But actually... When things started first going on social media and my story became known, if you like, that before then I'd never spoken openly to anyone about this. Barely even members of my own family knew about what was going on in my head, let alone, you know, the public out in the public domain. So it was really alien to me. And I was absolutely cacking it about that becoming known uh, because I'd, I'd kept this veneer all this time up to, up to now. And all of a sudden, my weak, my perceived weakness, if you like, was was going to be open, and people were going to know that I had something stuff going on in my head, and I worried would people question my decisions because because I'm an officer and things like that. Would people start questioning my decisions because of my mental health? And uh, there were so many things that were going around in my head, and I just really worried that people would look at me differently. But when it first started, story started first started appearing on social media, and people were sharing, you know. Uh, posts about the, the documentary and posts about my challenge, my upcoming challenge, things like that, and my story. Um, I was blown away, actually, with the positivity. Um, and I, so I was really, really worried that there was going to be some kind of backlash or negative reaction. But so many people came forward and said, you are going to inspire others. And I was like, just blown away with that. And that, that was that was amazing, the positivity that I got from that and, and, a, and a genuine surprise as well I didn't expect that kind of feedback um, and so many people coming forward to, to that I hadn't seen like old school friends I hadn't seen for 30 years and coming out of the woodwork to donate money to the cause and, and say you know you're gonna you're gonna reach out to people with this by coming clean and this that, and the other and um, it was really really nice actually um, and made some of the fears go away um, but like I say you will always get people in the background closet trolls who want to criticize anything and I just have to accept that those people will be out there and that they're unlikely to make comments that they're probably, you know, maybe or maybe this is just the way my head works again. I just feel like there'll be people talk, whispering behind my back saying, you know, taking the mickey or whatever. But I'm getting more and more used to it. And, and, and ultimately, that was the idea, to raise awareness of the cause. And if one or two more people seek help off the back of that, then fair play. And actually, a couple of people at work have said that, they're now going to go and speak to occupational health, whereas before they wouldn't have done. So, you know, mission accomplished in that sense. So I'm, I'm quite happy now and I'm getting more and more comfortable talking about it the longer this journey goes on. 
I mean, I'm being filmed like every other week, so I'm having to get used to it. Um, but it's still like, sometimes it's like trying to get blood out of the stone from me, but the whole, the whole process and the journey, I'm getting more used to it. Um, and I'm meeting some really inspiring people myself as well through the documentary who've suffered and, and you know, speaking with people like Matt as well. And you do realise actually you're not alone. And even in my own work environment, the amount of people you'd be surprised actually that are suffering. Like I say, in my just giving story, I say I'm yet to meet someone serving who's not damaged in some way. And I stand by that. It's just not many, only a few people come out openly and say it, um, but it's not uncommon. I, I defy anyone that says they haven't suffered in some, in some way. Um, but it's about making it acceptable to talk about it. Like what Matt was saying, it's it's good to talk. And blokes, we are notoriously bad for that. That's the, that's the crux of this issue. We Blokes don't talk because that's never been okay. But it's, we've got to get the message out there that it actually it is. And the suicide rates and the forces and the services are horrendous. That's a real, real issue. And COVID even now, like again, Matt touched upon this Um and the documentary, because of the postponements to my event, we've kind of been filming and captured the whole episode of COVID. And people that never realised they had mental health issues before, like you you said a minute ago, you know, now suddenly mental health is this thing that's affecting everyone. Um, and we've got to start listening and, and waking up to it. And I think it's, it's, it's being comfortable in that space because too often it feels like there is that stigma, which with anything that's relative and I don't mean you as in it wasn't there before but in terms of it being out there in the public eye there's always a stigma attached to something when it comes to the four um but actually the more normal it becomes in the sense of the fact probably everyone can even if it's in a very basic level actually say I've really struggled in the last 12 months with being at home whatever it is so um I think the actual I guess um, stigma is is getting away where it, people just don't feel like it's them in isolation and that's one of the powerful things that social media does do if it's used in the right way is it connects people from a similar thread discussion point whatever it is you, you follow and get involved in and actually if the the trend out there is actually oh there's a story of somebody in the services or somebody whatever it is and oh i can relate to that i've got a friend a colleague and it was the same with the nhs when we all saw how much pressure the NHS was under during COVID, suddenly everyone within their family network went, I know somebody who works in the NHS, I can empathise with that. And that's where this kind of story, especially if it's done over, like you're talking a long period of time here, actually a lot of people can then start to relate to it. And I guess that's that's kind of how this whole discussion started for me before we had our interview today. I had a, a very bad experience through work, sadly, again, a suicide experience. And was like, there's nothing out there for athletes that I know of. And I'd consider myself relatively immersed in the sports world. So did a bit of Googling and ended up landing on GoBox. Reached out to Richard and said, I've experienced this. What do you think? And he said, I get a call like this every week. Having a chat. And eventually it was kind of like, I've got a few other people that would be interesting to kind of share this message and would be happy to share their story that aren't from the sports world per se. They've all got their own professional lines of work. But actually... You're sharing a common message here. So I want to jump back a, a tiny bit here. Like, So, Matt, if you can jump back to when you first came across Richard, because that was sport that effectively brought you into that world, I, I understand. Yeah, so I was at the rugby club. Um, I, I, I touched on rugby in the forces, 
only doing a bit of training and you know there's some really good players particularly Fijians uh, South African people Welsh I mean I don't really want to say they're good but you know there's, there's a lot of rugby culture there <laughs> and uh, that was my first exposure to rugby um, and in the end when I finished uni and moved back into the area my, one of my best friends a guy called Greg Ranson um, he had just recently joined Hitchin Rugby Club and for me that was enough to get me down you know he said come on why, why don't you come down and I'd always have people in nights out like, big fella, do you want to come play rugby for us? Like, uh, yeah, yeah, sure, I'll be there. And I never turned up, obviously, because I wasn't around. Um, but yeah, I, I joined um, Hitchin Rugby Club and I started going training and it, it actually didn't take me long to like it. Um, it takes a while for kind of habits to form. And, and I started going in like November and it's pretty cold pretty horrible when you're you know you're new you're new to it all the contact stuff and you're getting absolutely smashed up in the freezing cold um but you know I kept turning up and one time when I was in the the clubhouse uh, that's the first time I saw this strange bald individual walking in um by the name of Richard Lucas I didn't know that was his name everyone called him Lex and he just said hi to me and seemed kind of friendly um, and I guess from there, really, I became aware of GoVox. At the time, it was called Feedback 360. And naturally, because I was in the world of kind of marketing and web development, I, I looked at the website, looked at the message and as assets and everything, and it really resonated with me because I was thinking back to had I had someone kind of checking in on me along those lines, would, ha would I have potentially given away some sort of sign that I might have needed some support? I think I might have done um, if it had been kind of uh, presented to me in the right way. Um, so I started reaching out, making a few suggestions about the website and improvements and that, as you do. And it turns out that they were actually looking into that sort of stuff anyway. So we kind of... Eventually, thankfully, they decided to use kind of my services there. Um, and the more I learned about the tool, the more I became interested in it and kind of passionate about promoting it. Um, so eventually that led me to leave in my kind of the first kind of marketing agency I'd set up with some business partners, starting up a new one um, and kind of working even closer with GoVox. Um, going to events, spreading the word. And it, it's taught me a lot. Um, um, it seems like the corporate world's ticking some boxes around well-being. Um, still, there's some of them that think well-being is like a fruit bowl and a bit of yoga once a year or something, or bringing donkeys into pet. Um, but certainly, the corporate world is making strides. Um, lots of sports clubs are making strides. Uh, quite a fair few amateur rugby clubs of really looking after the members through this time. Um, Hitchin Rugby Club's done a good job. North Arts Crusaders, the local rugby league team, um, they're two I'm involved with that have done a great job looking after people. Um, I think it just kind of boils down to um, us kind of pick, picking up the slack, really. You don't, if, if no one looks after um, people's well-being and mental health you know no one's actually going to get any support so it's just thinking about how you look at those support networks and just saying look why don't we do something you know so 
that's that's how I became involved. And then obviously the the sport thread kind of runs through into obviously some of the stuff you've talked about already, James. That actually it became more than that, and I think that's that's something where people can often knock sport and sports. You know, even like when you talk about PE at school, it's almost like it's an optional extra, and I'm like. That is as core on the curriculum as anything else. Um, not just from obviously the physical and the, the, I say formally, like it was the you know a hundred years ago, but it almost feels like the obesity crisis is no longer the biggest thing on people's minds. It's actually the raging mental health crisis that is going to follow this pandemic. And actually, physical health, whatever it is, whether it's just going for a walk or joining a local sports club, plays a huge part in that. So I just want to unpack a, a few of the experiences there. Obviously, Matt shared some really important things, I guess, from the people getting involved from a participation point of view. And then I guess, James, coming at it, I guess, from some of the more challenges and the things you've come across, it has, like you said earlier, become a form of therapy, if you like, that actually has helped you through this. It's not just a, a, a nice add-on. It's actually a vital part of, of who you are. Yeah, de- definitely. But it it wasn't always um, sort of take you back to primary school. I I was your little fat chubby kid and and wasn't really into sport. And I was the kid that would fake notes from my parents to get off games. I didn't. I would rather sit in a classroom and write an essay than than do that because it was a body confidence thing and I just just general confidence. And I think again, looking back now, knowing what I know now, it was probably something to do with the Aspergers and things like that. But of certain situations. But anyway. I was forced to do a detention one day at primary school and the, the teacher that gave me the detention was also the, the head of rugby. And uh, so his detention was me coming to rugby training. And I I think I I, I got praised for a tackle, but I, I think I probably just tripped over and someone fell over me. I don't, I don't think I intention, intentionally tackled it, but I got praised for the first time in something in sport. And, um, and it was just like, wow. And then, that same year I had a growth spurt and all of a sudden I was over six foot at 12 years old. So I was huge compared to my friends and, and all of a sudden, you know, rugby was my thing and I was good at sport and my puppy fat turned to muscle and it just, everything changed in the course of sort of a year or two. And the following year I was down at Hitchin and I started captaining my age group at sort of under 12 it was back then. And I stayed at Hitchin all the way through the youth teams um, captain of my 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 team and we were like a band of brothers and then it got to sort of near a senior level and then I went off to some bigger clubs in it which which is kind of the idea of junior clubs I guess to to to, to, to encourage you to go to the bigger clubs and I went off and and I played sort of semi-professionally and things like that for a while but I think ultimately looking back again with, with now I don't need to have an ego again that's part of growing up as well I've got rid of my ego it's I can look back now and say, actually, I probably wasn't good enough, you know. So, you know, I had a good crack, um, three, four good years. And then I, I sort of went off to uni and I, I I remember breaking my shoulder and the game had gone professional at that time. And uh, they they just sent me a text saying, basically, thanks that you're surplus to requirements now and they weren't going to renew my contract. And I just thought, this is how the game has changed. So I never really sort of returned to that level, but... I had a good little run, and so I came after uni. I came back to, to Hitchin, my, my where, where it all started really, and, and started playing rugby again. And um, fast forward a few years, basically, um, you know, playing the first team and things like that. And then I started to try and retire. Sort of, um, I guess it was late thirties. I was trying to retire because I'd had so many broken shoulders at that point. It was it wasn't even funny anymore. And um, 
but I'm I'm the serial. Uh, I would retire and then come back because I'd miss it, and then I'd retire and I'd, I'd come back. And um, so yeah, I'd been out of the club for I'd, I had sort of retired for a little bit when sort of Matt came along. So Matt and I hadn't, haven't actually played together, uh, although we were at the same club. So um, that was during one of my retirement periods. Um, but when I did sort of properly retire, because we've got a really I only retired from sort of club rugby. I still play rugby for the our brigade team because we we've got a really good team and we get time off to play rugby and things like that, which is good. But like the forces, um, so when I did sort of try and retire from rugby because of I didn't I wasn't enjoying picking up injuries anymore and it got in the way of my other training and my gym work and my running. Uh, I decided I still needed something competitive. Um, I need I need goals on the horizon. So. Um, the running, which was only sort of ever meant to be a hobby, then kind of took over. And again, it was just meant to replace rugby. But within two years, I was chasing national rankings um, for ultra and distance running. And actually, it was never meant to be that serious. But then when you start thinking, oh, I'm within t- touching distance of national rankings here, then it starts to take over. And, you know, I was trying to get top 30, top 20. And it then it, it kind of took over and became... <laughs> I was spending as much time on that as I had been on rugby. It was just meant to be something fun and a hobby, but it took over. Um, I think I'm at the point now where I can say, because of my age, I'm you know I'm not I'm I'm in my 40s now. I'm not an elite athlete, so I'm not chasing those rank, British rankings anymore. That those days are gone. So it is more, I guess it is more for fun now. But I still still like to think of myself as having a pedigree and being competitive. So. I will take on high profile events around the world. Um, and it's because of that. And because I'm on the circuit quite a lot, I've managed to keep on board of quite a few sponsors. And, and again, I'm not naive because of the film, quite a few other sponsors have come on board. Um, so, but that's fine. That's, you know, again, for me, it raises the awareness of, of, of the issue. Um, but basically going back to GoVox, um, again, through the rugby club, same, exactly the same as Matt. I met Richard or, or Lex Luther, as we, we like to call him. Um, and and he had come to quite a prominence within the rugby club. He's, um, he's quite a character, charismatic. Um, and he had formed GoVox um, and again started at sort of grassroots rugby. It was catering for the mental health and well-being of players. Um, and, and, and therefore I thought, you know, Lex and I had a chat outside of that about my, my events. Um, and, and thankfully GoVox came on board as one of my corporate sponsors. Um, because it was important for me, whilst it's great to have sponsors that are in the sporting world or, you know, sports nutrition world and and that kind of thing. I wanted a sponsor that to do with my cause and which was mental health, that was important to me that I had a like-minded organisation that was on board um, to help me, you know, I wanted to advocate that side of my challenges, not so much like, you know, I have to do social media posts for a certain, you know, protein drink or a certain yeah. brand of sportswear. That's all great and that's that keeps the sponsors happy. But, you know, my, my passion is being an advocate now for sort of mental health. So having GoVox come on board was really important and I, and I was, I'm pleased to sort of have that partnership with them because they, they do a great, they, what they do is, is, is invaluable. Um, 
so yeah, that's that's how I'm involved with GoVox. So uh, I'm again, we've, we I know we've bounced around and covered a lot of things here, but the what we're talking about, I guess, moving forwards, hopefully coming out of the pandemic, both being in a much more positive place than we were five, 10, 20 years ago from our mental health point of view. So reflecting back now, do you have a number of, and I don't mean tools in a go box, but do you have tools, attributes, skills that you've honed, developed, had to learn over the last five to 10 years that you've, you would say that have equipped you now looking forwards to put you in a good place and, um, like Matt, I don't know if that's something, I know obviously both of you, when we were speaking beforehand, mentioned about having to learn new things and new ways of seeing things and approaching things. So kind of, would you be able to bottle that up and put that name, that name a few things like that? Mm, yeah. So um, I suppose the, the mechanisms for me, there's a mixture of kind of, I suppose as physical things as well as kind of mental things. So fitness, definitely 100% you need to go and do some exercise get those endorphins released even better if it's competitive fitness better yet if there's a little bit of aggression involved like in rugby where you where you're kind of just smashing people up and everyone's loving it um in, in many ways the being on a rugby pitch is like being back in the forces with the kind of the, the, the kind of banter that goes on and and the approach to it and everything and the camaraderie um so that that's that's great um nutrition absolutely if you're eating rubbish probably going to feel rubbish you're going to resent yourself for eating something that's completely disgusting and bad for you all the time um you get that little bit of a release but long mid to long term you know it's bad for you so that that's something that's that helps um sleep is very crucial if you're very tired, you know, you, you're, very, you're definitely going to be miserable um, a lot of the time and it's hard to focus and perform on anything. So I do have trouble with sleeping still. I, I do generally get the right amount of time, um, but I, I still kind of wake up four or five times and it's a bit of a broken sleep. But, you know, I do the best I can out of that. Um, and, and generally, it is a sufficient time. It's just I don't often enter that deep, proper deep sleep. Um, but, you know, I'm not constantly tired all the time. So it, it's not that bad. Um, connecting with people. So you can be naturally withdrawn. It sounds like, you know, it can happen to all of us. But if you actually spend that time speaking to people and, and listening to them and kind of helping them and understanding that that helps um, just building those connections. And actually, if you can help someone else, it makes you feel better. So I don't mean you actually, you actually have to do physical things to help them, but just talking to them can be a big help, especially people if they live on their own and, and are quite isolated. Um trying to set a bit of routine and structure, um, thinking kind of short-term, mid-term, long-term in terms of what you're doing, um, building towards things. Um, I think at the, around mental health, there's, there can be trouble with um, kind of money, money and, and f managing your finances. So thankfully, my wife's quite strict with me on that. Um, before, you know, I, I'd burn money at a rate of knots and trying to chase ways to feel better um, and being quite poor with money management. Um, 
by the way, no amount of money really can make you feel better. Um, I, I think, imagine there's quite a lot of rich people out there that are quite miserable. It's not the answer, but it can help if you um, use it well. Um, a dog or something to care for. Um, my dog, you know, has cheered me up no end, just laughing at him. He, he does have issues, which doesn't help. Um, but, you know, having something to care for is great, as well as my wife, baby on the way um, in a couple of months. So that all of that stuff, you know, it's about you just need to find those things that are important to you and give you reasons to carry on, if not just because, you know, you've only got this one life. Um, you've got one opportunity to kind of do stuff. And before you know it, you'll be looking back, like thinking of all the memories you've created. Do you want them to be memories where you were just moping around and being miserable the whole time? Or do you actually want some... To, to, to try try and grab the ball by the horns and have good things to think about looking back. So those, those are some of the things. Um, yeah, that's all I can think of really at the moment. That's a pretty extensive list and very powerful. Yeah. So thank you for sharing that. James, I, I'm imagining there's some crossover there. So you're probably thinking I should have gone first. Uh, but <laughs> anything else that's pertinent to kind of your journey experiences that you're, you've honed to take forwards? Yeah, I mean, I'm learning new skills all the time. I'm a work in progress, as I say. I'm not, you know, I, I recognise I, I may never be healed, whatever that is, but I'm a work in progress and I'm in, I'm in a better place than I was. Um, you know, I'm learning, like I said earlier, coping mechanisms, grounding techniques, different ways of looking at things. And one of my favourite um, sort of, I don't know what you'd call it, um, techniques, I guess, is, you know, my therapist has taught me that, you know, don't, don't be so hard on myself. I will still have those down times because sometimes I feel like when I'm in a real bad patch, a real dark place, like I've somehow failed with my therapy and I've just slipped right back. But he, you know, he's taught me to just allow that moment, you know, almost treat it as a, as a music record, allow, allow it to play out um, and, and allow yourself to wallow in that moment. But knowing that that record will come to an end and then move on and just just little ways of thinking of things, you know, so I will get those moments of blackness. They're not going to go away and they may always be there. So just accept that. Don't beat myself up about that. Just allow them to play out. But knowing that I've always come back from it, you know, I can still function and perform highly. And, and so just let it play out. Wallow a bit, feel sorry for myself for a bit if I want. And don't feel bad about that and then move on, knowing that you'll always move on. The summer will always rise tomorrow kind of thing. So it's just, it is, it's, um, it's thinking about things differently and, and, and moving forward. My One of my worst things, Matt touched upon it, is sleep. Um, it be the nirvana for me, reaching a point where I can get a night's sleep. Um, you know, last night it was three o'clock um, and some nights it can be worse and then I'm up at six for work kind of thing, you know, so um that is one area that i have vowed to make better um but I, I, yeah i struggle i've always been a bad sleeper anyway and then with some of the things going on in my head i i struggle with sleep um that's kind of what the ptsd is meant to to help with but uh again treatment for that throughout the pandemic's been um, quite difficult um Again, same as Matt, having goals on the horizon keeps me sane. Um, 
now that UK athletics are allowing races back on the calendar, that's a massive boost for me because all of my races last year were cancelled. So I was just training, training, training with no goals in sight as such. I don't actually enjoy training. <laughs> you know, I love going to the gym and I like going out for short runs, but when I have to go out and hit the road for eight, nine hours, that's pretty soul destroying. So without having a goal as to why I'm doing that, I have to question myself. So uh, now that the races are back on the scene and they're all starting to appear on the calendar again, I've got that back. So that's, that's amazing. Um, and motivation wise, again, Matt mentioned this, uh, I too, I'm looking down, my dog snoring in his bed. Um, I'm a massive animal lover, you know, big dog person. I love taking my dog out. Um, and I've got family now. Once upon a time, I didn't have a family. Um, I've got my son is my my biggest source of motivation now. Um, and the key, really, the catalyst as to why I went to seek help. I didn't want my issues to start rubbing off on him. I want him to have a normal dad who can experience joy and not have these moments where I need to shut myself away in a dark room. It's not fair on him. That's so he's been my biggest motivation. And, he, and even recently when I've had some sort of moments of darkness, if you like, you know, my, my, my therapist has sort of asked about whether I felt suicidal at all. And, and whilst those things may, those feelings may come across fleetingly, um, I never act on them now. And I don't think I will all the while my son is around. That's, you know, I, I only need to look at him and I think I wouldn't do that. So that's, that's a huge source of inspiration for me. Uh, so yeah, just yeah for me, it's structure, routine, goal setting, um, and and you know just spending time with my son, and my family, and my dog. Just take enjoy the things that bring you joy, and and those are the very few things that do bring me joy. So do more of them. Basically. Fantastic. Again, some really powerful stuff there. So thank you for sharing that. One more reflective question for you both to pull this all together. If you could go back before this journey started, when you were still almost a blank canvas, if you like, primary school, secondary school, whenever that was, and you could give yourself one message, what would it be? Uh, Matt first. Hmm. Probably that, you know, life does bring challenge and um, you you can always kind of reflect negatively in your current situation and long for some imaginary thing in the future. Actually, the one thing you do have on your side is that you've got time now and you can actually do something in almost any moment to try and think a bit more positively and, and do something productive and positive. Obviously, at, at times, that's easier said than done and things can be difficult and feel difficult. But those moments do eventually pass. Um, there will be a day when things get better if you kind of put the right sort of stuff in place. Um, I suppose applying to that the the knowledge of kind of mental health issues and how they may impact you. Obviously, there, there, there are times when, you know, you are going to kind of lose hope, but just keep taking little steps and eventually, you know, you will be able to enjoy moments and you'll get kind of a bit of fulfillment out of stuff. Fantastic. Over to you, James. For me, and I mentioned it earlier, it's ego. If I could have learned to lose my ego years ago, I'd be in a much better place. Ego for me has, has affected parts of my life. So for example, 
it's it's because of ego. I've I've done things to be the best at them and not for the sake of enjoying them. You know, I can't just do something to enjoy it. I've always had to be the best at it. And that brings massive pressure on yourself. And, you know, looking back at the rugby days, when I when I en- ended up not being the best or being, you know, I expected to be a household name, you know, and when that doesn't happen and you don't rise to that the top of that particular tree, you, you massively beat yourself up over it. So learning to lose your ego is, is key. Um, and, and ego is also why... As men, we don't go and speak. We don't speak up. Um, you know, and 20 years ago, when I joined this job, it was my ego that stopped me from opening up about things that I was struggling with. Um, again, so if I could have chipped away at that ego, maybe I'd have spoken up sooner and sought the help that I uh, quite clearly needed at the time. I just think for blokes, this is why we're crap at talking. It's our ego. Um, and if we could learn to lose that a little bit, it would help us in so many facets of our lives, you know, socially, mentally, everything. We put too much pressure on ourselves to, to conform to some kind of perception of what a bloke is. And we all know, because we've all been through certain things, that that, that ideology is complete crap. But as a youngster... We need to teach people that as a youngster and start it early. And like I said earlier, when new probationers join our job now, it's about starting that process early, getting in their face when they're a fresh recruit and, and, you know, pushing the mental health aspect. You know, you're not an island and you will will see things that you're going to have to process and you need to do that early. Um, So get rid of your ego. So fantastic. That's brilliant. There was a, I guess we had before Christmas last year. And one of the things he said, expect struggle. That was how he defined it. He said, it, life is not that beautifully filtered world that we all see for our phones and actually lose your ego, find the routine, find the things in your life that make you happy. And some of the messages you both shared today, I'm sure will empower a lot of people to start on that journey. So to both of you, thank you so much for your time. We will include the links to everything you're both up to because it is fascinating the journeys you're both on. And uh, thank you so much for sharing some time with us. Thank you. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks again there to both James and Matt for sharing their stories. Some profound statements across the episode there. And as they both said, sharing mental health challenges really is a strength. Although some of the examples today probably made for uncomfortable listening, it falls upon each and every one of us to destigmatize the subject so people feel more comfortable opening up. Both these guys are really inspiring in how open and honest they were and are true ambassadors for mental health and well-being. To connect with Matt, we've included the link to both his LinkedIn and Go Big Digital website in the show notes. It's been cool getting to know Matt a little bit more since our recording and some of the work he does for both Go Big Digital and GoVox, who we spoke to last week. For James, we've included a number of links also. He's on Twitter as at 999Fireball. The trailer for his documentary we mentioned is on YouTube and we've also included the links for both his fundraising page for the Marathon de Saabs Challenge and the firefighters charity he's raising money for. Finally, please make sure you give us a follow on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and sign up for our monthly community update that drops this coming week and has some sneak peeks in there at Season 6, some more awesome guests coming up. 
our season five finale is live on Friday, and we've got a wonderful story of the value that sport can bring to somebody who faced huge challenge in their childhood and now helps shape positive futures for many others. Be sure to tune in for that. Thanks again for joining us for the Rogue Monkey podcast and have a great week.